Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope. Never Ever Give Up Hope is now heard in over 120 countries. And I am so pleased not only for my guests who share their incredible stories, but also for my listeners. And it is wonderful to know that there are so many people who want to hear messages of hope and inspiration. We live in a time where there isn't a lot of hope. And also there's a lot of negativity. And one thing that is the core that runs through like a thread with all my guests, and that is they were too in a hopeless situation, but they didn't give up. They kept focused and they won. And I'm just so pleased that we can share these stories, which are always phenomenal and always encouraging. With me today, we have Marnie Grundman. Marnie began writing as a way to release herself from the wounds of her past. And I think that that is relatively normal. A lot of people end up writing not only their memoirs, but also poetry and just sharing different things from their heart. And Marnie is one of these. She is more than a survivor. She is a Sir Thriver, and she's going to explain what that means later. She wrote her memoir entitled Missing, a true story of a childhood lost. Now, this is a must read for anyone who has gone through trauma because it's encouraging, it's inspiring, it's compelling, it's riveting, it's all those things that you want in a story, but also it has a fabulous ending. Marnie is extremely talented in many different areas, and she's going to share that with us too. Marnie is a living proof that no matter what life hands you, you have within yourself the spirit to rise, to rewrite the outcome of your own story, to create a life filled with love and happiness, which is what we all want. Marnie was a child, and this is so sad, the first time I read this, it just struck a chord in my heart. Marnie was a child who belonged to no one. Missing at the tender age of 13, she experienced firsthand the best and worst of humanity, which is going to be the thrust of her story today. Welcome, Marnie. Thank you so much for having me, Carol. You're very welcome, and I'm so excited to share your story. Your book was awesome, and we're going to be talking about that later. But let's start with the beginning. Now, you were lost, alone, 
and hopeless. And these are words that were probably part of your vocabulary as a little girl, which is really, really sad. And words, when you think about your childhood, is what you lived. Can you tell us about some of your earliest memories of the trauma that you had to live with as a little girl? Some of my earliest memories are uh, of my running away and trying to find my father when I was five, six, and seven years old. I, I, my mother was in and out of the picture as it was. And when she was in the picture, it was traumatic and it was bad. And, and it just, it, it rarely went well. And if it did, it was for public consumption, like at an event, a party, you know, family gathering mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, but in her care, it, it was, it, it never went well. So I was taking to the streets at a really young age and I look back at that and I'm so sad for that little girl who's wandering around I mean at five years old wow trying to find her her daddy based on once being in his office in a tall building um you know and at that age you think the moon is following you right right feel like you can get there kind of thing um, so those are some of my earliest memories and, and undoubtedly the ones that made me feel the most alone and helpless because I was trying to find somebody who actually didn't really acknowledge me and I was running from somebody who also didn't acknowledge me. Did you have siblings? I did. I did. I had one half brother who lived in the house with us from my mother's first marriage. Um, and, and this is also kind of going back in, in time. By 1968, my mother had been divorced twice and had two children from two different marriages. Now, that's not so unusual. Mm-hmm. But back then, you know, that was something to be ashamed of and hidden kind of thing. So there was also that kind of darkness that surrounded my brother and I. Was there abuse, Marnie, or was it neglect? And how did, what, how did it make you feel? Like you said you were looking for your daddy. Well, what, what were you going through emotionally that made you need to find him? There was abuse. Uh, by the time I was five years old, when the running started, or the, when I can rela- remember running, my mother had dropped me out of a two-story window, and subsequently I broke two, both of my arms. Um, so there was okay, neglect. Okay, just a minute, just a minute, hold yeah. on. <laughs> That's a little too much to swallow right in the beginning. All right, let's start. Okay. Yes, start that was that. abuse. So why would you, why did your mother do that, to punish you? Um, no, she did it, from what I'm told later, because I didn't know what the motivations were at the time. I found out in the last couple of years that it was for financial gain. As soon as that it occurred, as soon as she dropped me out of the window... Um, there was a c- scenario surrounding it. My brother was 13, 12 or 13 years old, and she was trying to get him to go and buy her a pack of cigarettes. They got in an argument about it being raining. My mother told me, go look out the window to see if it's raining. Now, keep in mind, I'm five. Okay. So I, I go upstairs. I stick my hand out the window. I confirm that it's drizzling. I can like It's crystal clear, eh? Mm-hmm. And, she comes up and the two of them are going at it. And she says, no, absolutely not. It's not raining. She goes, lean out the window further. And she had me by the legs dangling out the window and she let go. Oh, my and word. What I was told later was that um, within a few days of that, she filed suit against the landlord because there were no screens on the window. Oh, my goodness. Pretty clear it was for financial yes, gain. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that wasn't unusual for her. She was very motivated by money. She married for money. She divorced because of money. Men died because of money. I mean, it was nothing unusual. When this happened, did you block this out? Because you were five, but you don't really remember it? Or No, 
No, I've never blocked it out. I always remembered it. I always knew what happened. Um, when I hit the ground, I, I know that I was unconscious, but I was semi-conscious when she was putting me in a taxi to take me to the hospital, not an ambulance, a taxi. So who knows how long I was actually laying uh-huh, there before uh-huh. she gathered me up. I always remembered it. And what she did was she told two different stories. One, she told people that I was playing on a toy box I wasn't allowed to play on. And I was told to use that story and the other one when she was joking about it um was that i was trying to fly like superman and on on, of course i knew that wasn't true but i was powerless we're talking about powerless Mm -hmm. um i was powerless to say anything because i knew that nobody would believe me i knew nobody wanted to believe me which is worse that's a good point that's excellent point um you would it would cause too much stir Oh, for sure. Yeah. It would it would out the family, and that yes. that was the last thing that would be allowed to happen. Yeah. So, it is, is it at this point that you decided to go find your daddy? Um, at this point is when my half brother and I were made to go live with my grandparents. And when that happened, there was, I guess, some sort of document that needed to be signed by my father, um, who, by the way, later in life made up for everything. But anyway, he, he, when he was signing the document, my grandparents had brought me into his office. It was actually the first time I'd laid eyes on him in person. I used to watch him on TV, but I had never seen him in person. And, from that one memory, he picked me up and he put me on a table and and he patted me on the head and got me a hot dog and a Coke. And I never got soda, so like it, it was a big deal when I had mm-hmm. So I had a very vivid memory of something very kind and loving about him and, and what he did. And that's what tipped the scale for me to go, I need to find my daddy. He's going to make everything better because in that moment it felt better. So tell us a little bit about that journey then of you, you know, how long it took you. Did you find him? I found him. Well, I always knew where he was and I made several attempts. I was five, six, seven, then at the age of 12, another attempt. Um, unbeknownst to me, when I was married to my ex-husband, he actually called him and my, my biological father didn't believe that I was his child because my mother was cheating on him. Okay. And, and there were also the elements of their marriage and how, um, how terrible the divorce was. So he wanted nothing to do with it. He paid the child support. There were no DNA tests back then. <laughs> I, I actually ended up with him in my life in my early 40s because I reached out to one of my sisters that's his child also. Mm. I have siblings from him, and it, and there was a DNA test, and we became extremely close and had a great relationship up until the time he passed away. Now, usually in cases of child abuse like this, what I hear anyway is that you're looking for acceptance. And so usually what I see and hear is that a lot of these kids are really good kids because they're trying so hard to be accepted by their moms or their dads. Is this the Mm -hmm. case with you? Oh, absolutely. And actually, so there's a babysitter that has known me since the day I was born, and she's only 10 years older than I am. And she and I have become 
reacquainted in the last, I'd say, two years. And she told me a story of when she would go to the house after school to check on me. My brother would still be in school. I was a baby. And she would find me in my crib, not fed, not changed, sometimes eating my own excrement because nobody had fed me and she would say that no matter what the condition she found me in I wouldn't I was never crying and I would just look up at her and be so happy to see her and she said to me it was the, the words she used it was almost as if you knew you had to be good it was almost as if you knew that's what you had to do that's yeah. amazing. And it, it, you're right. It's like it's uh, it's innate, you know. Yes. The, you just know what you have to do, even at that young age, as a survivor. Mm-hmm. So yep. tell us about that. Why do you call yourself a survivor? <laughs> I can't say it. <laughs> it's a mouthful. <laughs> it is a mouthful. A survivor. I, I'd like to say I coined the term, but somebody that I that I met in passing a few years ago actually used the term. I don't remember what we were talking about okay. exactly, and I and I took on to it immediately because I think a survivor, and I was a survivor at one point, is when you're getting by, and you've gotten through the darkness, and you're kind of coasting in that sort of place. And I think when you're a survivor, it's because you're growing beyond that place, and it's not. It's not um, keeping you down anymore, and it's not tangled around you in that same way. You're just, you're walking lighter. And I think I'm a survivor because, not just because I've written my story, but because I've made something out of my life. I've raised three great children. I've broken the cycle. We've broken it together in many ways of the abuse. And so I've thrived. I've gone well beyond just merely survive. Was there a point where you almost gave up hope. Do you remember any of those places and maybe share that with us? The darkest, worst moment for me was, as a runaway, I was on the streets and I was in a sauna. I was sleeping in a sauna of an apartment complex and it was a bit chilly, even though it was Florida, it was pretty cold and I had nothing with me. I had just the clothing I was wearing, no food, no, no nothing. And I'm on, I'm sleeping while well, I'm attempting to sleep on these wooden slats and I can't figure out how to make the sauna work and I'm afraid to make any noise because I don't want like maintenance or somebody to discover me and kick me out. And as I was laying there and I was alone, I actually started crying out for my mother and wanting my mother, who had never shown me an ounce of compassion or love or affection, yet that's what we we do. That's what we want. And all of a sudden, I kind of snapped out of it, and I had a stepfather that had passed away, and I just started talking to him and, and, and wanting him instead because mm. I felt that he could see me and he could help me. And it was in those moments that I, I decided, you know what, I am – paying up front for a better life. I'm doing all my suffering now and what lies ahead, if I can get through that and I will get through that, is going to be worth all of it. And I'm not sure where that came from, but it wasn't the first time I thought it. It was just the first time that I thought it in that way. I think the first time I really thought it was around eight or nine years old. Survival, you know, that's the survival Mm -hmm. mechanism. That's right. And how did you keep focused? I think I was numb. Um, you know, 
you're focused on eating. <laughs> I was okay. focused on eating. I was focused on, you know, where am I going to sleep that night? Am I going to be on a park bench? Am I going to be in an abandoned building? The sauna was actually the best of all the options. Um, you're so focused on survival that mm. you're not focused on much of anything else. I mean, that's just the basics, right? So I think that's how I got through was just one day at a time trying to keep myself in one piece. Was there a, a place where there was a pivot where you realized that you could change something or do something to change your life? Um, during those years, yes, there was, it, it was called luck. I got okay. lucky and I landed a job at 14 ish as a cocktail waitress in a bar. And that was the turning point because that is when I learned how to make money and how to pay for a place to stay and keep a roof over my head. And that was an absolute huge turning point for me because once I, I, I realized I could do that for myself, there was no looking back. Amazing. And do you think that this tainted you in any way, like relationship wise or, <clears throat> excuse me, um, even with your own mother? Like, do you have a relationship with her? No, I don't have a relationship with her. It's healthier for me not to. Um, I don't think it tainted me. It, it affected and has affected my relationships for sure. I'm a runner. I learned how to run away at a really young age. So mm. when, when when something hits the fan, even if I'm physically still in the room, mentally I'm, I'm pretty checked out. Um, not as much now because now I know what it is. I understand what I'm okay. doing. But it's only really been in the last three or four years that I've realized that that's what I was doing. You know, I, I would create my own anxiety because it's a familiar feeling and it's what I know how to work through. Rather than waiting for something bad to happen, I might sabotage something because I, I operate well under those circumstances. And I'm learning and I've learned not to do that anymore, but it absolutely affected me that way. And it also... It did anything but taint me. You know, it's it's interesting. What it's done is it's made me appreciate the good people in the world. And it's made me appreciate what I have. And even on my worst day now, I, I'll never be in that sauna again. So I'll never have that worst day Okay. Again. Excellent point. What do you do today that you think is a direct reaction to what happened to you in the past? Um, positive or negative? <laughs> either, either one. Well, you kind of just shared the negative a yeah. little bit. Yeah. And I yeah. understand that. But, you know, yeah. like how basically you're channeling that energy that you had by being scared and alone and those emotions, right? Yeah. So that's the negative. So what did yeah. you learn in the past that actually has helped you today? And tell us what you're doing today as well at the same time. Um, in, in terms of what I learned and what the positive is, uh, I learned how to, to love myself and embrace myself and Excellent. appreciate what I've been through and not feel damaged by it anymore. I felt like damaged goods, you know, that's a, that's a very common yes. um, thread for children who've been abused and I no longer feel that way. And I, I embrace now that I'm the strongest person that I know, whereas before I would feel tired and not want to be strong anymore. And, th and that's the best part, I think, that's come out of it. And what I'm doing now is I, I've, I've finished my first book. I'm working on, on another book. Um, and I, 
have embraced writing. I've found my voice. I want to help find children that have run away and bring them back home. I'm working on a project right now to hopefully do that. And I want to help people. I want to help people who are living in the damage right now and let them know that there are ways that they can come out on the other side. Now, you just mentioned that you're working with children and you want to help them come back home. Uh, Explain that a little bit because does that mean go back to the abuse? Um, Not necessarily. I'm at the very early stages of what I'm trying to do and I've been putting kind of a plan together and I've actually um, pitched it as as like a 30-minute television show every week and I'm, I'm working on that right now. There are situations where children run away from a home that may, may be that one of the parents were abusive and there's now a divorce and they have a better family unit to come back okay. to. Okay. There are situations where maybe it was somebody on the outside that abused them and threatened them and they didn't go to the parents and and they decided to run away instead. You know, there isn't one paintbrush for this. Okay. It's not, my mother didn't care. She didn't want me back. But there are parents out there that are willing to do the work that do want their children back. And there are children out there that are unaware of that now. So, you know, if we can work together to reunite families, yes, there's some that you can't reunite. There's some it's wrong to reunite them, but maybe even finding that missing child and bringing them to safety in some other place or some other <coughs> member of the family that, that wants to be there and is capable. And I, I think that that's something that we need to do and we need to, to, to do it now the, because one in, what is it, one in five children end up as in sex trafficking rings, being yes. taken into those rings. We're feeding that industry with runaways, with the throwaway youth. And the only way to stop that is by rescuing the child, right? What kind of age bracket there usually? Um, preteen or? It's preteen up until, you know, they're adults as well. But as far as runaways go, um, I think the most common demographic is 13 to 17. Um, but there are children as young as t- 10 years old living on the streets. So it's not exclusive to that. How did you protect yourself when you were doing that? Sometimes I couldn't. Um, sometimes I was I was victimized. I mean, I was actually, I was raised to be a victim. I, I was a, a predator's dream. You know, a child who's been sexually abused knows what sexual abuse is uh-huh. and, and equates that with love in some sort of way. So there are times where I wasn't able to protect myself and other times where I would fight back. I had somebody break into an apartment I was living in. I had the good luck that I was ironing at the time and threw an iron at him, went screaming out of the apartment and somebody called the police. So there's times I got away, there's times I didn't. Did you get bitter at all? Was there at a point where you were bitter? No. Isn't that amazing? It's it's strange to me. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think I should be. You know, sometimes I think I should be. I, I was never bitter. I think there there have been times I've been really sad and really mourned for the childhood I didn't have. Mm-hmm. But I can't say that I've actually ever been bitter. I've I've interviewed a lot of people who have gone through not to belittle your experience or their experience in any way, but similar experiences. Mm-hmm. And this is what a common thread that I have seen. Now, some of them were bitter initially, but they overcame it. 
and they learned how to forgive, which is, as a lot of people would say, how could you possibly forgive that? How did you forgive that? Oh, I'm so, I love that you just used that word because that's a pet peeve word for me. (laughs) I I haven't. (laughs) Okay. I, I have not forgiven my mother because I equate right or wrong by definition I equate the word forgiveness with almost saying it was okay and I think a lot of people do feel that way I haven't forgiven her I've just I, I understand I understand that she had her own demons some of them um to do with being border personality disorder and having issues like that some with the fact that you know she was raised by some people who who put her through her own kind of things that and I wasn't there obviously I wasn't born I understand I have compassion and beyond that whether she lives or breathes or doesn't it doesn't matter to me anymore there's there's it's done I'll never forgive her because she could control her behaviors at certain times and chose not to. Mm. And that's why I can't. But I don't hold it with me. I've let it go, but I don't yes. feel like to let it go, I need to forgive her. I think sometimes we have to give ourselves permission not to forgive people. Say it was okay. You know, I totally understand where you're coming from. And I think another another fine line here is the difference between forgiving and forgetting. Mm-hmm. Because I know a lot of people say, oh, I, I forgive and, you know, it's very easy. I understand that. But they'll never forget. And you have to remember in order because that's who you are. Yeah. If you, you know, I, I think that forgiveness and forgetting are two completely different things. For sure. And even when you say you haven't forgiven her to, in a way by letting it go. That is an element of forgiveness because you're not allowing it to control your life. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I but, just don't want her to get the feeling. Right. Of- <laughs> no, I totally understand. And that, and you yeah. certainly are entitled yeah. to that. Yeah. And that's, um, so it's, it's basically semantics, really, you know, what it comes down to. But you definitely have, have reason to, you're not holding a grudge. In other words, is what I'm trying to say. To me, that's forgiveness. You're not holding it against her. You're not holding animosity. You're not holding bitterness or any of those other things. You're living your life. And just because she's not part of it doesn't mean that you haven't, in essence, forgiven her or, you know, are, are grudging it. Yeah, I guess and, I've let it go. You're right. Yes, you've so let it go. And, and my, my hat's off to you because there are people, Marnie, and this is what part of your story is about, who can't. They can't let it go. They let it control their lives. I have interviewed them. And, yeah. and it comes across, even though they might say the words, but it comes across as an underlying tone of, of bitterness and it affects their lives. And so when I said to you, possibly inappropriately that you have forgiven her it was because of what I'm hearing from you right right and and not inappropriately and you know I I I I did hold anger at her for a very very long time and in the end as we know and I know it's that saying cliche whatever but it it only hurts the person who's holding the anger because she doesn't care Right. So the only person I'm serving, really, I'm, I'm giving her all the power by not letting go of what I should let go of. And when you're holding that much anger, you're not letting love in. You're not letting right. joy in. You're not connecting with the people that you deserve to receive from because you're, you're a shell of yourself. And it, it 
you're never going to be happy like that. Ever. You're right. Very well stated. So tell us about your family. You have three children, you said. I know. I and- had three, three grown-up <laughs> children. Oh, my goodness. And- it's great. <laughs> Did any of your, when you were raising your children when they were young, did any, did you have difficulty thinking that possibly you would be a neglectful or abusive mother? Like, I know some people do go through that. I I wasn't worried about being neglectful. Um, If anything, I overcompensated and I always tried to live every day like it was opposite day. In other words, opposite of what my mother would do. Mm. Day. Mm-hmm. However, that being said, there was a period of time where I could feel like it was her anger inside of me, like short temperedness and that sort of thing. And I was fortunate that I was at a point in my life where I knew the thing I needed to do was get help and support. So I, I did. I spent two years in therapy um, and I ran the gamut because I didn't want my children to ever experience a day that they didn't know that they were loved and valued. Right, right. So I wasn't perfect, but we did pretty well. And I can see now my eldest daughter has two children. I can see the cycles being broken and broken and the improvements continuing. So, you know, in the end, if you're aware and you're willing to put in the work, it's going to come out okay. Are you telling me you're a grandmother? I did. (laughs) Cat's out of the bag. (laughs) You know, you look, when people see your picture on the website, you look like you're about 14, you know. (laughs) Well, maybe 24. (laughs) Maybe 24. Well, I'm 50. And as a runaway, I started at 17 having babies. So there you have it. (laughs) And, you know, listen, at least I got some good genetics out of this, physically speaking. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) I agree. You did. (laughs) <laughs> now, when when, and how and why did you decide to share your story? I have been trying to write my story since I was 17 or 18 years old, and I just didn't have the courage or, oh. or the voice to do it. And I, I tried again when I was in my 20s. And I moved to Toronto from Montreal, and I was starting this new life, and I just I had started writing these blogs kind of anonymously and people were commenting on them. I got some emails from blogs that I put out there under my name because it built my confidence. And when I saw that I, that people were responding to my voice, I felt more confident and I felt my story would help them. For me at 17, I wanted to write it because when I came back, when I was forced to come back, there weren't any resources. There was nobody I could connect to. I'm a reader and I would look for books. I'd look for an article. I would look for anything that would talk about a child who ran away or why they ran away. There's a huge (coughs) stigma attached to these children that they're bad kids. Like There's a, a lack of acknowledgement of that they're in danger. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so that's why I, I wrote the book. And what I learned along the way was as soon as I put the words on the outside, I also put a lot of the pain on the outside. And, and it, mm. it, 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 it's cathartic. That's, you know, that's the word. So what happens when you see a runaway on the street? Do you recognize them? I, do I ever- don't know if I, if I, I mean, I do see youth on the street here in, you know, in any city you're in, but here in Toronto. And I, because I'm at the beginning part of this journey, I don't know how to connect them with resources or what right. to do with them. So normally what I'll do is I'll go into whatever store is nearby and I'll buy them some food and I'll talk to them for a minute. They're, 
they're they're pretty close, but I know they're hungry at a minimum. Um, my my goal now that I've gotten through telling my story is to become more involved so that I can recognize and and help these children get to where they need to go. Whether it's like the Covenant House, which we have here, um, and getting involved in those organizations so that I can do something to make a difference. So tell us a little bit more about your book. Like, is it written as a novel? Is it just the story um is it a self-help book tell us about your book um well obviously it's my memoir it tells what what led me to the streets in great detail it tells about how I survived and what that experience was like and then coming out of the darkness and I think it's I think it's inspirational I think it's it's translates to anyone who's been through any dark times in their lives and it's meant to be you know at first glance you think it's this dark sad horrible story and it kind of is but in the end it breaks open into the light and that's very much how it's written it's written to inspire people not to make them sad what is your passion now Writing, <laughs> writing, and helping people—that's my passion now. I've been an art, a visual artist for the last twenty years. I still dabble a little bit. Um, I've been a jewelry designer, but really now my passion is to write and help people. And also, I, I do a fair bit of, of ghost writing, and I'm helping other people to write their stories. And um, that's that's my path now. How would you like the audience to? respond to what you're sharing today how do you want them to possibly have it help them or help someone else and what would you like to have them do to change whatever they're going through in their lives i would like them first of all to know that they're valuable and lovable and i i know those are just words we're throwing around but i've been a person who felt damaged and and unloved and not valuable so if I could feel that way, anybody could feel that way. And I want them to know that, that they're, they're important and their feelings are important and that there's nothing that they can't work through. If I could do it, they could do it. The most powerful tool to me was writing. And you don't have to write to, with the intention of telling a story for anybody else to see. But if you can take your stories and put them outside yourself. That's really what healed me. And I, and that's an, a tool that's accessible for everyone. So what I want them to take away is, you know what, if you're having a bad day, write about it. Sit down with a pen and paper or, or however you want to do it and identify those emotions. Because once you do that, you, you gain the power to overcome them. And do you have a website or someplace where people can connect with you? I do. It's www.marnie, M-A-R-N-I-E, Grundman, G-R-U-N-D-M-A-N.com. And if they message me, I always respond. All right. And what what is your website about? Is it your writing as well? Are you... It's everything. So it, my blogs are on my website. I actually also write with my eldest daughter. So some of her work is on there as well. Um, my uh, services that regarding ghostwriting are, are listed on there. The interviews that I've done in the past, what's coming up is on there. And my book is, of course, available for purchase on there as well. So in closing, what would you give as just a final motivation or an encouragement to anyone who may be suffering or know someone that is suffering along these lines? Well, 
you know, when I found you, the reason I found you was because I was looking for articles on never giving up hope. So I might have to steal from you right now. And the thing that I would really tell them, it's true, though, is to never, ever give up hope. Never give up. If I had given up, I wouldn't be here today. You know, I, I, I was living in a sauna. I, I lived in abandoned buildings where I didn't have a shower or a bathroom or anything. You know, leaning up against a, a wall next to the next to a door or a window so if somebody came in I could make a quick escape if I could survive that at the age of 13 there's nothing that anyone is going through right now that they can't survive say that again if I could survive that at the age of 13 there is nothing that anyone is going through right now that they cannot survive powerful words an abs- absolute truth. And absolute you, truth. And you are definitely a picture of what you just said. Thank you. You know, you painted a word picture, but it also shows you look like nothing could have possibly happened, that you had a wonderful life. And that's, that's the message that you're trying to give. That's what I'm seeing is that mm-hmm. I even read some reviews like on your book, etc., that said that people didn't even realize knowing you today of what you had gone through. And it's certainly not because you buried it. It's yeah. because you learned from it. It's because you grew as a result of it. And that's the message you're giving. You know, you're a beautiful, complete, whole person with lots to give. And you don't live in a dark world, even though that's where you came from. And so survivor, survivor, whatever you want to call it, you are complete. My hat's off to you. Thank you. You know, you're not showing the bitterness or the remorse. Yes, this happened. But I'm moving forward and I'm determined to live a good life, to have my children live a good life. I mean, that's what it's all about. And I really, really appreciate what you shared today. Very well stated. Thank you so much, Carol. Thank you for for having me. I really appreciate it. And goodbye. And we'll want to hear from you again when your next book is ready. Fabulous. Okay. (laughs) You will. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.